Good morning, church family. Um, it's great to be with you today. Uh, we're going to continue our series talking about spiritual warfare, calling it the unseen battle. But before we launch in today, uh, vote, okay? <laughs> vote. I voted this past week. Vote, 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 okay? Secondly, uh, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, is an opportunity for you to invite your family and friends from all over the country to tune in because I'm going to preach on Jesus and politics. I'm going to preach about how as followers of Jesus we engage, engage politics, okay? And I know that for a lot of us who've already voted, it'll just be a great reminder for us. But for folks who have not, I'm hoping that it'll be foundational truth that'll guide you. So please be mindful of that. Invite family and friends to tune in. Um, we are going to continue our series, and I'm going to read the anchoring text that we've been using, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Okay, so here we go. A final word. Be strong with the Lord's mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand against all the strategies and tricks of the devil. Verse 12. For we are not fighting against people made of flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against those mighty powers of darkness who rule this world, and against wicked spirits in the heavenly realms. Use every piece of God's armor to resist the enemy in the, in the time of evil, so that after the battle you will be standing firm. Verse 14, stand your ground, putting on the sturdy belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In every battle, you will need faith as your shield to stop the fiery arrows aimed at you by Satan. And verse 17, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We are engaged in an unseen battle. The Bible says that our God is a God of light, but we have an enemy, the devil, who is the God, small g, of darkness. Our God is a God of truth. The devil is the God of lies. Jesus came so that we might have life, the Bible says, and have it abundantly. But we have an enemy who fell from heaven, took a third of the angels with him, and their aim, their objective is to steal, to kill and to destroy everything that is good. The Christian life church, we've been saying, is a fight. The world is not a playground. It is a battle ground. And the battle is not against, it's not a material issue. It's not against him or her or them or systems. There are powers and principalities behind him, her systems and institutions that wage war against you, against me, against our marriage, in our churches, and against the world. And the first step we've said in this battle is becoming aware of the battle, right? If you and I don't know that we're in a battle, you'll never win. So I've asked this question every Sunday. When is the last time you encountered things that you just couldn't explain? When's the last time you looked at your marriage problems that just seemed to come out of nowhere and you said maybe it's not just about lack of communication? What about a relationship with a friend that just goes south? Maybe it's not just what you see with your eyes. Maybe there is something else a darkness, heaviness that's overwhelming, discouragement, disillusionment, even depression that comes. A powerful desire to lust that seems to come out of nowhere. Anger and bitterness that consumes you. And I could go on and on and on. But when is the last time you thought, just pause for a moment and said, maybe it's not just what meets the eye. Maybe there are powers and principalities that is at work. That is at work. Maybe it's spiritual warfare, demonic opposition at work. I just want to say this. Uh, if you're not being attacked, it might be because you're not doing anything. I, I, I know that if you are someone who is bold in sharing your faith, you're going to be attacked. If you're being generous with what you have, you're going to be attacked. When you're glorifying God with your life, you're going to be attacked. When you don't just go to church, but you are the church, you're going to be attacked. 
When you're using your gifts to serve, to advance God's kingdom, you're going to be attacked because anywhere there's progress of the kingdom, there's always counterattack from kingdom of darkness. Now, I've been asked, why, why, why are we talking about spiritual warfare of all the things that we could be talking about? Now, some of you, I don't need to tell you why. You just kind of know, and you're like, absolutely, this is what we need to be talking about. But for those of you that are going, why are we talking about this? Listen, Luke 4, 13. This is Luke's version of temptation of Jesus. This is when the devil had finished all this tempting, the Son of God, he left him until an opportune time. An opportune time. There are different seasons and times when you're more vulnerable. There are seasons and times when temptation will be more powerful, when you're more vulnerable to give in. You go, when are those times? If you're taking notes, write this down. H-A-L-T. Halt. But each of these stand for something. Opportune times when the enemy will come and attack. What does H stand for? Hungry. When we're hungry. It's no coincidence that Jesus fasted 40 days and the Bible literally says he was hungry and that's when the enemy came after him. You notice when you're hungry, your temper's shorter? And we even have a word for this, right, in our culture. Hangry. Like, that's, that's me. When I'm hungry, our temper's shorter. When I'm hungry, everything looks good. Even stuff that's not good for you. What's A stand for? Angry. Think about mistakes you've made when you're angry. Listen, demonic, listen, demonic forces, demonic, when you think about demonic warfare, don't think about some paranormal activity. The Bible says when you're angry, do not give the devil a foothold. Demonic activity comes in anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, jealousy. When we're angry, we're more temptable than other times. When we're, enemy, when we're angry, it gives the enemy an opportunity to establish strongholds. So let me ask you something, friend. Do you have unforgiveness in your heart? Do you have anger towards someone or something? L, lonely, lonely. The thing about temptation, I talked about this last week, is that there are legitimate needs. It's often around legitimate needs. Companionship, companionship. Who does companionship to be with someone is a legitimate need. But what does Satan do? He says you could meet the legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Come on, you lonely? I can, I can give you companionship. And it comes on a screen. Comes through a person comes through an activity. It could even be a good thing, but Satan comes and tempts you to meet that good thing in the wrong way, at the wrong time, with the wrong person. Legitimate need, a legitimate way. And lastly, T, tired. When you're tired, your guards are down. When you're tired, you're not alert. When you're tired, you're not discerning. When you're tired, you will do things and say things and watch things that you normally wouldn't do. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Let me ask you something, church. Is it lost on anybody that what seven, eight months of COVID has done is that we have an entire culture of people who are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. You see why I'm preaching on this? Follow me here. If we're more temptable when we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, if the enemy's primary objective is to steal, kill, and destroy, this is fertile soil right now for the enemy to exact maximum destruction. Listen, I don't know why God allowed this pandemic to happen. I've always said to you guys, 
things happen in our world because we live in a fallen world among fallen people. That means that we live in a world that's still filled with death, disease, evil, and injustice. And this side of heaven, we are not going to know why God allows certain things to happen. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I do know that God is still fully in control and the kingdom of God is advancing. I, feel, I still do know that people are being saved, people are being healed, people are being set free, and people are being delivered. I do know that. I also know that the gates of hell cannot stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Because I do know that the enemy is one who is defeated on the cross. I do know that the one who is, lives in me is greater than the one who is in the world. I do know that we don't fight for victory, but we fight from victory. These are truths that I do know. So we hold on to these truths, and we anchor these truths, and we are alert to the battle that is being waged. First step, be aware of the battle. The second step, though, is what we've been talking about, which is what? Become aware of the enemy and his tactics. If we are going to engage in this battle, church, you've got to be aware of the enemy and his tactics. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, his tactics. And we said last week, his name reveals his tactics. There are a number of names in the scriptures for who the enemy is, but the prominent one that Jesus talked about in John 4, John 8 is what? He is a liar. Diabolos, devil diabolos in Greek literally means liar. Jesus says he is the father of lies. Why is that important? Because the battleground for this unseen battle is where, church? Come on, come on. Right here. The battle is not just out there. The battle is for our minds. It's for our belief system about God, about you, about what's happening in the world. That's why the New Testament is filled, filled with exhortations. Romans chapter 12, 2, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 4, 4, think about whatever is true. What you believe will affect your emotions, which will affect your behavior. What you believe will affect your emotions, which will affect your behavior. You and I become what we believe. You and I become what we believe. It's, it's, it's funny to me, not really funny, but it's interesting to me, that Christians say stuff like, I believe this and I believe that. You want to know what you believe? Look at your behavior. If you want to know what you really believe, look at your behavior. That's what you believe. What you and I actually believe is how we act. I could say, I believe that everything that I have comes from God and belongs to God. But how I act and behave with my finances tells me what I really believe. I could say God is a priority. He is the most important thing in my life. But you look at my life, how I act and my behavior, and that tells you what I truly believe. That is why the most important truth that we come around is, what is the truth that I believe about who God says he is? H.W. Tozer said the most important thing is what you think about when you think of, uh, what is what you think about when you think about God. The most important thing that you and I, the most important thing that you and I need to remember is that Satan wants us to doubt God's heart and God's intentions. Because how we perceive God will determine how we perceive almost everything else in life and how we relate to life. Do you remember Moses says to God, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. And God says what? I will let my goodness pass before you. Do you know that the root for that word goodness in Hebrew is literally generous? Do you know who God is? God is the most generous, most loving, most lavish, kind, compassion person in the universe. Can I get an amen? God has got your back. That's who he is. He is for you. That's who he is. He has your best interest at heart. That's who he is. And that's why, write this down. It'll be up on your screen. When you start to question the goodness of God, it'll be much easier to disobey the will of God. When you begin to question the goodness of God, it becomes that much easier to disobey the will of God. Do I believe the truth about who God says he is? And then secondly, just as important as this, do I believe the truth about who God says I am? 
Do I believe the truth about who God says I am? There are no words known to us that are more powerful than these. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. I delight in you. I love you. Transformational change happens when we claim that truth that God spoke over his son and speaks over us. We claim that truth again and again and again and again. These are the most important truth. Is it any wonder that when Satan comes to tempt Jesus, he goes for his what? Identity. If you are the son of God, turn these stones. If you are the son of God, jump down from, if you are the son of God, he attacks his identity. And by the way, we're going to come back to this at the end. Do you remember how, do you how Jesus defeats him? He doesn't do the God card. He says what? It is written. It is written. It is written. Listen, Satan can't take back territory that was won by Christ in his death and resurrection. Satan can rob, he cannot rob our standing with God, our position with God, our relationship with God as his children, but he could keep that relationship from being what God wants it to be. So he'll come after you. Come after your identity. He'll come after your identity. Let me just quickly, just let me just... Do you know how this is manifested? Let me just, let me just tell you an example. I'm sitting with a, a, a Korean-American brother. And I'm, and I'm in this counseling session with him. And he says this. He says, I'm a wreck because of my father, Pastor Peter. I hate him. I hate him. As I'm sitting there listening to his story, pretty quickly I realize that his father passed away years ago. His dad, listen, for years was not even around to, to, to say anything to him. What was getting him were the lies that he was still believing about what his father said to him years ago. Some of you listening to this this morning, you're hearing this lie that says, I'm never going to measure up. I'm, I'm never going to measure up. And it came through a coach, a mentor, a parent, a friend, maybe even a pastor. And so anytime you get criticism, it just paralyzes you. It just crushes you. Why? You're still believing the lies. Some of you hear this lie. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy of love. And every time a relationship ends or something happens, a voice inside just says, you're not worthy of love. Who would ever love you? Some of you sitting here this morning have been called to a significant kingdom assignment and you hear this voice. Who do you think you are? You think you are qualified to do this? Who would follow you? I heard this illustration. It stuck with me. When you, near a piano, sing a note, the note that that string is on will vibrate. That's what Satan does. What, is, what does he do? He aggravates. He vibrates. He stimulates the conversation that's already going on. Do you hear me? Listen, listen. I'm revealing his tactics. What he'll do is he aggravates the self-talk that's already going on in your head, in your heart, the lies we're telling ourselves every day. The devil can't make a good person bad. He takes a bad person and makes them worse. And he watches you, studies you. He knows what makes you insecure. He knows who makes you insecure. He knows what makes you reach for that food. He knows what makes you reach to log on to that website. He knows. He knows. He knows what makes you afraid. He knows what makes you insecure. He knows what makes you angry. Do you see how he works? See how he works? Now, one of the, one of the most powerful ways that he lies to you, last week we talked about temptation, and today we're going to talk about, he lies to you through accusations. Accusations. He's a liar that accuses you. 
That's his name, by the way. He's the accuser. And so rest of today, I want to talk to you about how he accuses you and way to combat the accusations, the lies of the enemy. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan in Hebrew literally means the accuser. Now this is the thing about Satan. Satan will tempt you just so he could accuse you. Let me say that again. Satan will tempt you just so that he could accuse you. Just so that he could come storming back to heap guilt, condemnation, shame, fear, and insecurity to come storming in your heart. He tempts you with, God will forgive you. Then when you give in, the accusations come. He'll never forgive you. He'll tempt you with, what? Oh, you could always stop. And you give in, he accuses us, you'll never be able to stop. He accuses you, and he accuses me. It's not giving in to temptation that's keeping you and I where we are. Listen to me. The truth is that in Christ, you and I could come boldly before our God and find forgiveness, find redemption, and find healing. But what Satan will do is to keep you down keep you disillusioned, keep you discouraged, keep you depressed, defeated. How? By believing the lies and the accusations. You want to hear some good news? Come on, somebody. You and I can silence every voice that is raised up to accuse us. You and I could silence every voice that is raised up against us. Here's a, chapter, here's a verse I want you to memorize. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17. But in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you, to which all of God's people said, amen. These benefits are enjoyed by the servants of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me. I, the Lord, have spoken. You and I could silence the voices of the accusations. You and I can overcome the condemnations of the enemy. How do we do that? I'm going to take you to an obscure passage. You know, I love preaching on obscure passages that I know, for those of you who grew up in church, you're like, I've never heard that before. I'm going to take you to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Now, let me give you the context real quick. The prophet Zechariah is given a vision. And the vision is he sees a heavenly court. It's a heavenly court. And there are four characters. There's God, the judge. There's Joshua, the high priest, who is on trial. There's Satan, the accuser, prosecutor. And of course, there is the fourth mystery person, simply known as the angel of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Check this out. Then he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Wait, those of you who grew up in New Community, you know who this is, right? Who, who is this? This is who? This is Jesus. The fancy schmancy theological word is Christophany. Everybody say Christophany. Christophany is simply a non-physical manifestation of Christ. Where do you see this? Remember Daniel chapter 3? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the blazing furnace, and there's a fourth angel of the Lord who is walking with him. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? Now, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his, that is Joshua's right side, to accuse him. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Verse 3, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The thing is, Satan seems to have a case against Joshua. Joshua's robes are filthy, and he's a high priest, which means his robes were to be clean. And we know from Scripture that filth is a sign of what? It's a sign of sin. It's a picture of sin. So Satan seems to have a case against Joshua. Joshua is dirty when he's supposed to be clean. 
He comes before God and he is unclean. Can you imagine standing before a perfect holy God and being unclean? Of course you can. Of course I can. We've been there. You've been there. What is Satan doing? He does to Joshua what he does to us. He's leveling what? Accusations. 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 And you and I feel guilty. You and I feel unworthy. You and I feel ashamed. Let me expose the enemy this morning. Do you know what his accusations sound like? Let me tell you exactly what they sound like. And I'm going to go over these. Take notes. First, he'll cause you to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. Come on, somebody. He will cause you to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. And this is especially hard for some of us who are still living with the consequences of our sins. How often have we played that thing over and over again? How many of us are held prisoner to that mistake that we made years ago? And we say what? Man, if I can go back and do that again. Man, if I can go back and have another chance. Why did I do that? Why did I go there? Why with him? Why with her? Why with them? Why that decision? Why that deal? Why that job? And Satan knows there's a lot of ammunition in our past. There's a lot of ammunition in our past. And if you're struggling with the consequences, you are susceptible to his accusations because you'll hear him say things like, God can't do anything in your life. Or in their lives, maybe. But your life, you had your chance. You're on plan B. Maybe plan C. Anybody hear that voice? The accuser will do everything possible to convince you that God is done with you. And I know, as I said this last week, I know I'm, I know I'm talking to somebody who has believed this accusation and you've pretty much concluded, you know what? I'm done. I'll never overcome this. And so I'm going to continue to do it because it doesn't matter. And you're stuck in a habitual cycle. And Satan, the accuser, has you exactly where he wants you. He causes you to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can be undone. Here's the second one. He makes you think that the troubles you're going through must be punishment from God. He'll make you think that the troubles you're going through must be punishment from God. When things are hard, when, thing, when God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, how often have you and I said, I'm being punished for that or something? How often have you said, these things would be happening unless God is mad at me? Or as I've seen as a pastor, when people, again, experience unanswered prayer, Pastor Peter, could this be because I did that back there? And I, Satan says, you are being punished for what you've done, which leads us to doubt what? God's heart and his intentions. Here's another accusation. He makes you think that the inner struggles and feelings that you have, real Christians couldn't possibly have. Oh, this is a big one. This is a big one. He makes you think that the inner struggles real Christians couldn't possibly have. So we say what? If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts or desires. If I'm being tempted to do these awful things, then I must be an awful person. Or for some of us, we do what? Someone tempted to do that could never be used by God. How could I ever be used by God when I struggle with that? Does anybody recognize these voices? Listen, there are sins in our lives. There are things that we're doing that are not easy to get rid of. There are indwelling sins in us, even for those of us that have been saved, redeemed. And the whole process of Christian life is continuing to die to our sins and die to ourselves. But there are indwelling sins in us. And so the accuser comes and says, you are still the same person. Don't fool yourself. You're not changed. You're not saved. Don't fool yourself. You're not a real Christian. Does any of this sound familiar? Two more. Here's his next weapon. He causes you to measure your life against false standards. 
He causes you to measure your life against false standards. What do I mean? To my Korean brothers and sisters, has any of you had this experience? You're just in a car going along somewhere, and your dad driving, mom driving, I don't know where they just, they just, they're just not talking to anybody, but they, they'll say something like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, yeah, we were talking to their parents. Their, their, uh, their son got into Harvard. Ain't talking to nobody. Just dropping. What's the message? Unless you go to Harvard, you're a failure. Who or what are you comparing yourself to? Who or what are you compare? See, he's subtle, church. He's not going to come and say stuff. You're like, oh, that's the enemy. Who or what are you comparing yourself to? And saying, unless I'm like that, I'm no good. Unless I can be like that person, I am nothing. And they get rooted in our souls. Satan takes some idol, something that the world said you have to have, something that your parents have told you you have to have, your peers, your culture told you you have to have in order to be significant, in order to be acceptable, in order to have any worth. And they're false standards. They're not truth. But Satan takes them and says, you're not very desirable. What a shame. You haven't reached your goals. You're a failure. You're single? How can you possibly be happy? You didn't get into that school? You have no future now. Does anybody recognize these voices? Accusations. Accusations. You're not enough. You'll never be enough. And last one, and the most damaging of them all, is he causes you and me to look more at your sin than at your Savior. He'll cause you to look more at your sin than at your Savior. Satan wants you to reflect on, look at, and think about what you've done instead of thinking about, reflecting on, and thinking about what Jesus Christ has done for you. He'll cause you to fixate on your sins, fixate on your flaws, fixate on your weaknesses rather than fixing your gaze on your Savior, on your Redeemer, and what He has done. And man, this tactic works. Do you know how I know? Because you and I spend way too much time thinking about what? What do I need to do? How much do I need to do it? and far too little thinking about who Christ is and what he has done for me. Do you hear me? And can we be honest? Does all that focus on what I need to do and what I need to do better, what, is it working? Is it working? We're not getting better. Your behavior might be getting better, but your heart is getting worse because you're becoming more and more self-righteous and judgmental of other people. We need to be freed from what I will call a narcissistic understanding of spiritual growth. We need to be freed from a narcissistic, it's about me, what I need to do, understanding spiritual growth. For every one look at your sin, Christian, take five looks at your Savior. For every one look at your sin, take five looks at your Savior. When we stop focusing on our narcissistic need to get better and begin focusing on the work and record of Christ, that is what it means to get better. When we stop obsessing over our need to improve and start obsessing over who Christ is and what he has done, that is what it means to improve. Can I get an amen? Are you familiar with these lies, these accusations? Do you hear them? Lies that we're telling ourselves every day. And the enemy just comes and plays on the strings. You'll never measure up. Who do you think you are? You're a failure. Who will ever love you? You'll never overcome that temptation. Ooh, you'll always be the same person. God can't forgive you. Just think about what could have done. And on and on and on. Is anybody ready for some good news? Come on, say somebody. Because the scripture tells us again and again and again that we could silence the voices of his accusations. And we pick up the story. Look at verse 4. The angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, oh, I love this, take off his filthy clothes. 
Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. The gospel. I will take away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you, Joshua. The devil is the accuser, but here's the good news. We have an advocate, the defense attorney the universe has ever known. Can I get an amen? The Bible says that his name, our advocate, our attorney, defense attorney, his name is Jesus. 1 John 2, 1, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Oh, my goodness. The word advocate, two Greek words, literally, para kaleo. Para means come alongside, kaleo to argue. Jesus Christ, our advocate, comes alongside of us and argues on our behalf, defends us against Satan's accusations. He comes and says, God can't forgive you. He comes and says, he's done with you. He comes and says, he can't be a real Christian, but we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our advocate, who argues on our behalf and defends us. Is that good news? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Can I just tell you something? For the longest time, even the seminary-trained person didn't quite understand what Jesus being our advocate and defending us before the judge God meant. Because for the longest time, here's how I pictured it, right? So I'd sin, and Jesus at the right hand of God, and Jesus is saying stuff like this. He's, he's, saying, he's saying, Father, I know Peter did that, but you know, he promised he wouldn't do it again. He promised he wouldn't do it again. So, so let's give him another chance. I'll do it again. Father, 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 you're, you're a God of love. You're a God of mercy. He, 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 he's he's going to do better. So let's give him another chance. And then, you know, I started thinking. And I'm like, how long can God keep that up? I'm not, I know he's good and loving and all, right? But how long could God keep that up? For the hundredth time, two hundred times? It's not until I understood what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is our advocate that I began to understand in confidence. Do you know what it means? Jesus as advocate means that he's not up there pleading for mercy. Jesus is up there saying, Father, I know you're merciful, but you're also just. Peter has sinned. His robe is filthy. And Father, you're holy and righteous, and sin demands payment. Then our advocate says what? I paid the payment. Look at my broken body. Look at my poured out blood. The punishment, Father, has been paid in full. It is finished. So I am not, Father, pleading for mercy. No, I am pleading for justice. Justice that demands payment. Payment which has been made. There's nothing that Peter can do to affect his standing with you. Is this good news to anybody? Oh, man, is this good news. Is this good news? The gospel, Jesus Christ has paid the payment, and he says, I will take away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. In his death and resurrection, Jesus takes off our garment of guilt, filth, and shame, and puts on and covers us with robe of righteousness. Do you know what came to mind? Do you know what came to mind when I saw this picture? Luke 15. The story of the prodigal son. Who rebels and wanders away from the father. Then he comes to his senses and realizes, this is not what I thought this would be. Maybe I'm talking to somebody this morning who wandered from God. And you finally come to your senses, you're going, I thought there was going to be life there. There's only death. I thought I would find freedom there. There's only bondage. And the son comes back. And do you remember this picture? Come on, somebody. Do you remember this picture? The son comes back, and the father is waiting for him. The son has this whole speech prepared. I just want to be a servant. The father does what? Runs to him, and the father says to the servant, get my robe. Get my robe. The father gets his robe, and he does what? He sees his son's filthy robe, and the father takes his robe of righteousness, and he what? Covers him. What a beautiful picture 
of the gospel. Sinister story, verse 6. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. It's verse 7. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. What is God saying? God's saying, Joshua, return to the temple and keep on serving the Lord. I'm not done with you. I've got plans for you. I know you messed up. I know your robes are filthy, but I've cleansed you. I've redeemed you. I've healed you. And then the accuser says, you're done. God can't use you. God says, I want to use you for my kingdom. Is this good news to anybody? Is this good news to anybody? Man. The accuser with accusations. So how do you fight lies? Come on, everybody. How do you fight lies? You fight lies with what? With what? With truth. Everybody say truth. You fight lies with truth, with truth. And we're pivoting now because when we're going to the next sermon, in this sermon series, we're going to begin to talk about the armor of God and the weapons that God has given us to do this battle. How do we fight lies? We fight it with truth. Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them with truth. Your word is what? Truth. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the what? Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. Spiritual warfare, I said this last week, is not a power encounter. It is a what? Truth encounter. You fight the liar with the way Jesus did. Jesus, it is written. It is written. It is written. Child of God, look at me. This book right here has all the authority that you need to defeat the enemy. This is truth, God's self-revelation of himself. And the thing is, Jesus, if you cut him, he'd bleed scripture. Read the gospel, see how often Jesus is quoting scripture again and again and again and again. Child of God, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. God says he has given us every armor that we need and every weapon that we need, but we need to use it. We need to access it. We need to appropriate it. God will not do this for you. We need to do it ourselves. So how do we fight the enemy? With truth? Let me give you some examples of how I do it. Let me give you some examples of how I do it. And I do this out loud. Some people get freaked out when I do this because they're kind of near. But I do this out loud because I want the enemy to hear. So when the enemy comes and says what? The accuser comes and says, God doesn't love you. You say what? Yet to all who received him, to those who believe his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He is my heavenly father. I am his child. He delights in me. He is well pleased with me. When the accuser comes and says, God's done with you, you say what? Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a good work and God is going to perfect it. The accuser comes and says, what? God must be punishing you. Look at what he's doing. God must be punishing you. Say what? All my punishment was paid for by Jesus Christ. Not only am I loved and accepted forever in Christ, but the consequences of the sins that I'm living with is here because God has a redemptive purpose for it. God causes all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What you meant for evil, God meant what? For good. My God is so great and so gracious that somehow he is able to weave even the consequences of my sin for his glory and my good. Oh, is that good news? When the accuser comes and says, you can't be a real Christian. A real Christian wouldn't do that. You say what? I'm not saved because I'm good. I'm saved because he's good. I'm not saved because of my obedience. I'm saved because of grace. For it is by grace you have been saved, not by by works, so that what? No one can boast. And the sins that are in me that could trouble me, but sins that are in me can trouble me, but they will never be able to condemn me. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My sins might be great, but my Savior is greater. My sin reaches far, but my Savior reaches further. Is that good news? Come on, somebody. And when the accuser finally comes and says with false standards, you're not very successful. You're a failure. You're stuck in that dead end job. God can't use you. You're still single. You can't possibly be happy. You're not very attractive. What a shame. You say what? I have been engraved on the palm of his hands. 
I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me. I am loved by the eyes of the only person whose verdict matters. And Satan, you're going to hell, and I'm going to rule and reign with my heavenly Father for billions and billions of years. Is that good news? Come on, somebody. I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer. Oh, man, I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer. And here's what I'm going to do. As you pray, as you pray, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up those five accusations that the enemy loves to use. That's his arsenal. Those are his tools in the toolbox. And I'm going to frame them as questions. And I want you to think about, am I believing this lie? Am I allowing him to have a field day with my mind with these accusations? Think think, think. And then we're going to come back at the end and declare the truth of God's word. We're going to use the sword of the spirit that is alive and active. So as you're praying, here's the first question. Here's the first question. Am I obsessing over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone? Am I obsessing over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone? Child of God, is that you? You realize the source of that. You realize the source of that. You realize who is doing that. It's not just you. Not if you understand demonic activity and spiritual warfare. Second question. Do I think that the troubles I'm going through right now are punishments from God? I think God's mad at me. Has God angry at me? Has he not forgiven me? Lies, lies, lies. Here's the third one. Do I think that the inner struggles and feelings that I have, real Christians couldn't possibly have? Oh, this is a big one. Somebody listening to this this morning, you've been struggling with some habit, some addiction, some sin for years. Seasons of victory and long seasons of defeat. And you're sitting there and you're wondering, am I really safe? Do I really have the Holy Spirit inside of me? Lies, lies, accusations. Fourth, am I measuring my life against false standards? Who or what have I allowed myself to believe makes me significant, acceptable, worthy? What lies am I believing about some idol, some standard that the world or other people have said? Lies that's discouraging you. Lies that's discouraging you. And then lastly, Am I looking more at my sin than at my Savior? Come on, somebody. Am I looking more at my sin right now? What I'm doing, what I'm not doing, what I failed to do, what I should have done, rather than looking at the beautiful, the wonderful, the amazing, powerful Son of God, Jesus, my deliverer, my redeemer. Am I right now obsessed with and pouring over and fixating on what I did and what I should have done rather than lifting my eyes up and seeing what Christ has done? Oh, Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth. Right now, Spirit of truth, lift the veil, lift the blindfold, and right now, bring in a sense of awakening and alertness to anyone listening to this, realizing the lies and the accusations they believed for months, for some years. And Lord, we pray for deliverance. We pray for freedom. We pray for healing. We pray for salvation. By the power of your name, Jesus. By the power of your name, Jesus power of your name. Now, church, check this out. Here's how we're going to end this service. Here's how we're going to end this service. On your screen will appear, on your screen will appear truth, 
truths about who you are and who Jesus is. And what I want to do as I end the service is we're just going to, in our homes, in our kitchens, in our bedrooms, in our sanctuary, we're going to declare these truths together. We're going to declare so that the enemy will hear. We don't need to engage in long conversation. Jesus didn't. It is written. It is written. It is written. He just quoted scripture with the authority of scripture. So what we're going to do right now is we are going to declare these truths. Declare in faith. Declare these truths in faith. This is how we do spiritual warfare. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. Here's the first one. First one that tells us, in Christ I have been. Let's say this together. In Christ I have been. Set free from sin and condemnation. Set free from Satan's kingdom. Forgiven of all my sins. Given the Holy Spirit adopted into God's family, justified freely by His grace, given all things for life of godliness, given authority over the power of the enemy, given access to God. That's who we have. Secondly, in Christ I am, let's declare these truths together, free forever from sin's power, loved eternally, not condemned, one with the Lord, quickened by his mighty power, seated in heavenly places, hidden with Christ in God, secure in Christ, and more than a conqueror. Oh man. Here's the next one. In Christ, here's what we have. Access to the Father, an anchor to my soul, a hope that is sure and steadfast, power to witness the mind of Christ and peace with God. Next one, in Christ I can do all things through Christ. Find mercy and grace in time of need. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Defeat, overcome the enemy and tread Satan underfoot. And lastly, lastly, declare this loud together. In Christ, I cannot be separated from God's love, be lost or perish, be moved, be taken out of my Father's hand, be charged or accused. Do that one again. Be charged or accused. One more time. I cannot be charged or accused. And lastly, be condemned. Hallelujah. Is this good news, church? Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for these truths.